I've had a wonderful time in this series and study, and it's such an appropriate thing uh, to be considering um, our resurrection hope that uh, this world is not all there is, that we have the promise of eternal life, and even more so, we have the promise of perfect bodies, bodies that will be made like Christ Jesus. So there's a lot of different avenues and things we're going to look at tonight. I hope you've got your notes and your pens ready. I'll try my best um, to go as slow as possible when it comes to writing down notes and yet uh, be very quick. And so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read tonight from verses 50 to 53. And so if you have your copy of your New King James Bible or one of the other that's approved by your pastor. Uh, Let's read that together. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So as we've seen, 1 Corinthians 15 has taught us much about the resurrection, hasn't it? We've seen that the resurrection is an integral part of the gospel. No resurrection, no gospel. We've seen that the doctrine of the resurrection is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His victory over death is our victory over death. And we've learned that we'll have resurrected bodies and our resurrected bodies will be like Christ's body, glorified and perishable in a spiritual body. Well, in our passage today, our main idea is that Paul addresses the necessity of the resurrection, Paul addresses the necessity of the resurrection. In case you were wondering, uh, our resurrected bodies will look better than Michael Jackson's hologram. Uh, I don't know how I didn't hear about this as it happened, but I stumbled across a video this week on the internet uh, from 2014 when Michael Jackson performed his song Slave to the Rhythm at the Billboard Music Awards. This is, of course, a strange phenomenon considering the king of pop died in 2009. Uh, The miracle here was the result of a holographic image integrated with a real team of dancers and special effects. It took six months for the production team to pull it off. I'll let you look it up on your own and see if it was worth the effort. Uh, But the final product, though impressive from a technological perspective, never lets you forget that you are looking at something fake. As hard as they tried to raise him from the dead, as lifelike as their hologram was, it lacked something human, something essential, something real. Listen, remember church, Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose now, and that will be our purpose for all of eternity. Holograms can't do that. Holograms can entertain and impress our culture, but only human beings created the image of Christ can worship the one and true only living God. The promise of the resurrection is not the unreality of a hologram, nor is it some kind of fuzzy, disembodied existence. It is to sing, to dance, to live, and work as real human beings. Uh, 
as resurrected beings with bodies that are fit for their eternal existence with God. This is the idea of today's passage. It's that these bodies, these resurrected bodies we're talking about, they're necessary. We've seen that to some extent, and yet what I'm hoping to do tonight is to look at it at a slightly different perspective. Our bodies must be changed. Whether we are dead or alive, we must be recreated in the image of Christ. So the focus of our passage, again, is on the necessity of this, but specifically on the necessity of our bodies being transformed. It is necessary that we be made incorruptible, glorified, and spiritual. Whether we're resurrected or still alive when Christ returns, these bodies, as they are now, must be transformed. Okay, let's dive right in, right? Verse 50 says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. The first thing I think we see from this text, again, is we must have incorruptible, glorified bodies like Christ. We must have incorruptible, glorified bodies like Christ. It's been a while since I've preached two sermons in a day. At least it feels that way as my voice is starting to give out. Uh, that's the basic meaning of verse 50, what you have right there. That's it. But I want to make sure we understand why Paul uses the words that he uses and what he means by them. Uh, And so I want to break down that phrase, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, And I think there are two expressions there that I really want to define and ask what does that mean and then ask how do we know this to be true. So let's start with this, this phrase, flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. What does flesh and blood mean in the scriptures? We, we hear this term quite a bit as we read through our Bibles. What does it mean? What does flesh and blood mean in the scriptures? Well, flesh and blood has various meanings in scripture. It can first, it can simply, um, it can mean simply a human being or a person. That's what it can mean. It can mean simply a human being or a person when you refer to flesh and blood in this way. It, we see that throughout Scripture. For instance, in Galatians chapter 1, 15 and 16, Paul writes, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. That's a literal translation. It, it means with a person. I didn't go to people. But that, that's not the meaning of flesh and blood in our text tonight. It makes no sense for Paul to say that a a person cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? Because Christ is a person and he has inherited the kingdom of God. We will remain human beings when we inherit the kingdom of God as well. So that's not what he means. The second way it's used often in the scriptures is flesh and blood can also mean physical descent. That's another way it's used in the scriptures. Flesh and blood can also mean physical descent, a lineage, a heritage being brought uh, through your ancestry in some way. So in John chapter 1, 12 through 13, right? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who become children of God are born of God, not born of flesh and blood. They don't become children simply because they have the right parents, right? Or physical descent. That was true in the Old Testament, but under the New Covenant, one does not become a child of God 
by physical descent. Again, that's not the term Paul is using here either. That's not the focus here. So what does he mean in our context? What is he referring to when he refers to flesh and blood in this very famous, very popular phrase? Flesh and blood means, in this context, our current bodily existence with all its physical limitations. Our current bodily existence with all its physical limitations. Really, it simply means life here on earth now, how it is. That's what Paul means when he talks about flesh and blood. Life here on earth as it is now. We see this in Philippians 1, through 24. He uses this term in this way. We read this, but I, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what, shall I what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, to be in the flesh for Paul meant to continue in this bodily existence here and now, right? To depart from the flesh meant to die and go be with Christ. Uh, and this last definition really is closest to what Paul is after with his use of flesh and blood in verse 50. It's our current experience in this physical body. Uh, it's a, an experience that's marked by weakness and limitations. In these perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural bodies, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So let's look at this other term. We looked at flesh and blood. Let's look at the second part of this because this term is probably one of the most important terms in all of Scripture and not many people can define it. So I want to give you a working definition for this term. What does the kingdom of God mean in Scripture? I believe we've looked at this before, but once again, this is one of the key themes throughout all of Scripture. Uh, there are many ways we might go about explaining the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God mean in Scripture? Well, I think in the simplest terms... It's defined this way. It's simply God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's our definition. Again, I think we preached on that not too long ago. And we can really focus on either one of these aspects, God's people, God's place under God's rule, and still be speaking about the kingdom of God. But these three together, together give us the best description of the kingdom of God that Paul's describing here. And so here's what I'd like to do. Let's take these each in turn and look at them one at a time to define the kingdom of God. God's people. The kingdom of God is to be found wherever God's people are. The kingdom of God is to be found wherever God's people are. Uh, God's people are those who love and serve him. And so I want to look at this from the story of Scripture. We talk about biblical theology. Remember, Scripture has one thread throughout the entire thing. It's really one story. So I want to back up and, and look at it in light of all of Scripture. Adam and Eve were originally God's people. They were created to be priestly kings, sons and daughters of the Most High. They belong to God and experience God's special presence. However, when Adam and Eve sinned, they became slaves to sin. They were no longer in right relationship with God. And I don't think it's too much to say that they were no longer God's people. Well, in the rest of the story of Scripture, the, the rest of the Bible is the story of God's promises and actions to redeem his people from their sin. 
So the trajectory of the story takes us through things like Noah and Abraham to the nation of Israel, but it finds its culmination ultimately in Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect people of God. He is everything that Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Israel were supposed to be, plus so much more. Jesus Christ redeems God's people. He reconciles them back to God. So God's people, therefore, are simply those who have been saved by God. They have not been born of flesh and blood, but in the will of God by the generating work of the Holy Spirit. So God's people now can be seen as a holy priesthood, can be called to glorify God and to serve the nations. The kingdom of God, though, is not merely God's people. It's also God's people in God's place. God's people are supposed to be in God's place. God's people are supposed to be in God's place. Again, following the trajectory of the story of Scripture, let's look at this. It's a place of God's own choosing. It's a place marked by plenty and and blessing. Immediately, God placed man in the garden sanctuary of Eden, right? Man's task was to be fruitful and multiply, to extend the kingdom of God over the entire earth. But first, Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. The the first couple, they were kicked out. God did not abandon his plan to build his kingdom, though, to have his people in his place under his rule. What happened? He chose Abraham. And what did he promise Abraham? He called Abraham to a special place, and then he promised him that he would give that place to his children. And when the time was right, God redeemed Israel. He brought them out of Egypt and then into the promised land. Do you see this theme running through the entire book of Scripture? He brought them to Mount Sinai and then to Jerusalem. And once again, God's people were in God's place. But Israel, like Adam, broke covenant with God. They worshiped created things. They despised God. They abused their neighbors. So therefore, like Adam and Eve before them, they too were exiled from God's place. Israel was cast out of God's place. But let's think about this in terms where it finds its culmination in Christ. Christ left his place, the very throne room of God, to come and dwell among us that he might bring us as his people back into God's place. Christ came to reclaim the garden. He came not only to redeem God's people, but to bring them to God's place, which will ultimately be the new heavens and the new earth. Not only God's people, though, also God's people in God's place under God's rule. Remember, God is the only rightful ruler. He's the only just king of the universe. He rules over all things. He's the sovereign of the universe, and nothing is outside of his control. But listen, God's kingdom is where his rule is acknowledged. God's kingdom is where his rule is acknowledged. It's where his rule is obeyed. The earth is filled currently with rebels who do not acknowledge God as ruler, nor do they obey his law. That is not so in the kingdom of God. Right? In the beginning, remember, all things were with right relationship with God. We looked at this morning. But with Adam's disobedience, sin enters creation. God's rule is challenged by his covenant partner. When God called Israel out of Egypt, he brought them where? Not first to the promised land, but to Mount Sinai, where God instructed them how his people were to live under his rule. 
Now, of course, they transgressed God's law. They experienced the consequences of their rebellion. But Christ obeyed the whole law for his people. He comes and he lives perfectly under God's rule. He redeemed us so that we're no longer under law but grace. Now we live in the law of Christ. We're called to love God and to love our neighbor because we, we, not because we need to merit anything before God, but because we've already been given all things in Christ. So listen, in Christ, the faithful, obedient covenant partner, he has ushered us into the kingdom of God. He has brought God's people into God's place under God's rule. Jesus Christ was God's man in God's place under God's rule. By his perfect obedience, even unto death, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. So now, in our current reality, we, the kingdom of God has come in part, right? It is already present and yet not yet here in its fullness. Wherever there are people who trust and follow in Christ, they are God's people. We are God's people, and though we do not yet possess the land that God has in store for us, where we gather is God's place. Our homes and our meeting places are outposts where the future kingdom glory breaks into this present evil age. And finally, we, we know that we are under the law of Christ. God rules and reigns in our hearts, and though we long to be completely free from the influence of sin, we are even now learning to hate sin and to live for Christ, are we not? So do we understand what flesh and blood is? This weak, perishable body in its current state, do we understand the kingdom of God? God's people and God's place under God's rule? Because now we can look at this, this question that the text poses for us and answer it. Why can't flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God? Why can't this body, as it currently states in its current existence, inherit the fullness of God's people and God's place under God's rule? Well, the obvious reason would be this. It's that these perishable bodies cannot inherit something that is eternal, right? That would be the obvious reason. These perishable, weak, frail, corruptible bodies, they cannot inherit something that is eternal. Paul expresses this quite clearly all the time. Your outer man is decaying. You are living under this particular kingdom in this present evil age, and your bodies are suffering for it. As the writer of Hebrews says, by the way, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's an eternal kingdom. Listen, uh, bodies that can be shaken cannot inherit a kingdom that will never be shaken. Only bodies that cannot be shaken are fit to inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But, but I want to look at a couple other reasons that may not be as obvious that I would like to highlight why flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the first. It's that God's people are no longer under condemnation. You understand that God's people are no longer under condemnation. The kingdom of God belongs to those who belong to Christ. And those who belong to Christ, remember, they're free from the guilt of sin. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, where does death come from as we looked at this morning? It's the wages of sin. But those wages have been paid for us because of the atoning substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we cannot die. Listen to me. The grave can no more hold us than it could hold our risen Lord Jesus. 
Because of Jesus, that is the case. And so there's one reason. Another reason flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God is because God's place is in a new heaven and new earth. God's place is in a new heaven and a new earth. That place where death shall be no more. There is no death in the new heavens and new earth. Remember the very words of Christ when he was talking on the subject of the resurrection. Our God is the God of the living, not the dead. It's the place where every tear has been wiped away forever and ever. Decaying bodies will have no part in such a perfect place. So that's another reason flesh and blood and our current bodily existence cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Lastly, here's our final reason. It's because all of God's people will live under God's rule. Now, this is closely related to the second one, right? There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's close to that, but slightly different. See, not only has our guilt been taken away, but the power of sin will be completely removed from us as well. We will become righteous even now as we are righteous in Christ. Since God has always said, do this and you shall live, God's people will live under God's rule. They will obey and obedience will lead to life. Obedient bodies must be incorruptible bodies. So that comes to the conclusion, Christian flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a lot of time on one verse, I understand that. But you see the importance of this? Paul goes on in verse 51 to tell us secondly... That not just the dead, but all of God's people will be transformed. Not just the dead, but all of God's people will be transformed. He goes on to say this in verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, the word mystery can hang us up a little bit. Mystery here does not mean something we can't understand. That's not what he's referring to. It's not like trying to figure out how the pyramids were built or who framed Roger Rabbit. That's not what he has in mind here. It's not that type of mystery. When, when Paul uses this term in most thoughts, it's, it means something previously unknown that has now been revealed. That's what he's referring to. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, Paul writes, By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This mystery of the gospel was not a mystery that was difficult to understand. It was a mystery that had not been made known to other generations, but had been revealed through the apostles and prophets. So it's not so much, I just don't understand. It's a mystery to me. It's more like, wow, I did not see that coming. What a mystery. And so what is this mystery that Paul revealed? He says in the end of 51, we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. And then look at the verse 52, the beginning. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, we know that Paul uses sleep as a euphemism for death, right? So when Paul writes, we should not all sleep, he means we shall not all die. Uh, Paul's not making a promise that some reading this letter would not die before the coming of Christ. The mystery here is that we would all be transformed. 
both the living and the dead. And so now he's broadening it. He's saying all who belong to Christ, all of the people of God, will be transformed. The focus to what was previously unknown that is now revealed is that we shall all be changed. Leads us to point number three. We all must bear the image of the man from heaven. We all must bear the image of the man from heaven. Verse 52, all will be changed the instant Christ returns. Not over an extended period of time, whether it be 50 years or 1,000 years, but look at the text, it's clear, in a moment. He says at the end of verse 51, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. So follow me. Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and all who are left alive will be transformed, and this all will happen in a blink of an eye. Our transformation will take place in the blink of an eye. I truly believe that. Our transformation will take place in the blink of an eye. And by the way, this is exactly how Jesus explained his return in Matthew 24, verse 31. We read this. He says, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then Jesus goes on to say how some people will be caught unaware. People will be going about their business thinking all is good and boom, the trumpet will sound, the Lord will descend, and this present evil age will come to an end. Listen, Paul knew this to be true. And I think he knew this to be true for three specific reasons. I want to outline them here. He knew that the the trumpet, the transformation will take place in the binkle of eye because first of all, his Bible told him so. His Old Testament Bible told him so. Uh, Paul knew that the trumpet would sound and the end would come, the dead would be raised because his Hebrew Bible said it. The trumpet will sound. That's not a new concept, right? Like most of the New Testament, as Brother Corey mentioned a couple weeks ago, a familiarity with the Old Testament helps one understand what Paul's saying here. Isaiah 27, 12 and 13 reads this, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. You hear that? The trumpet will sound. And all of God's people will be gathered unto the Lord. Uh, This is actually a picture of a greater exodus. The redemption of God's people bringing them out of captivity. This is where we talk about eschatology here. This is a thoroughly Old Testament eschatological image. Uh, It is. It's not only in Isaiah, but it's in Zechariah 9, 14 through 16. Look at this. It says, Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. The trumpet will sound to announce the coming of the Lord. The trumpet marks the end. It announces the day of the Lord, the final exodus of God coming to save his people. Paul Paul already had this expectation in his mind. He knew his Old Testament well, but he goes further than that. 
Not only that, Paul met the first fruits of the harvest. Paul knew that all that was left is the harvest. Do you know that? Paul had met the risen Lord. Jesus' resurrection meant that the new age had already dawned. Uh, The hope of Old Testament Israel had been met in Christ. All the promises of the Old Testament, they are yes in Jesus. And all that was going to take place when the trumpet had sounded had somehow already begun. Paul knew all that was left is the harvest. That's how he knew what this meant. Paul knew this because all that is left is the harvest. The defeat of God's enemies. The gathering of God's people being accomplished in Christ. What's left? What is left for there to happen except for the trumpet to sound, Christ to return, and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth where God's people will glorify God and enjoy him forever and ever. But listen, there's one more reason that Paul has for being so sure of the outcome of this last trumpet call. The resurrection of the dead and the transformation of all those who are still alive. It's because Paul was no doubt familiar with Christ's own words. Where's my water? There it is. Paul was no doubt familiar with Christ's own words. John records Jesus' teaching on this topic in chapter 5, 25 through 29 of his gospel. He writes this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is... When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation." Listen to me, when the trumpet sounds, the hour will have arrived. Let's look now at our final verse, verse 53, very simply, very quickly. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We really have already unpacked this verse. It's actually very parallel to what we studied in verse 50, but I want to emphasize just one Greek word here. It's the word day. A literal translation would be, it is necessary. In our translation, it is uh, translated twice as the word must. It is necessary. And this really sums up Paul's point back to our main idea. It's necessary that these corruptible bodies are clothed, are put on incorruptible. It's necessary that these mortal bodies put on immortality. There is no other way. And as I was studying this week... Um, my mind kept going to John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where we read this. Jesus says, And most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here, Jesus explains that it is necessary for a person to be born again or regenerated by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary for you to be born again, or you can write regenerated by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, if you can fit that in the blanks, in order to enter the kingdom of God. In a similar way, uh, Paul teaches us that one had to receive a new heart to become citizens of Christ's kingdom. 
And so they'll have to receive new bodies to dwell in Christ's kingdom. Our hard, corrupted hearts had to be replaced with new hearts. In the same way, these weak, corruptible bodies will need to be replaced with bodies that are fit for the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And only those who are in Christ will be transformed into his image. Uh, We get that? Uh, People are brought into a right relationship with God through the proclamation of the gospel. Does this sound familiar from this morning? Uh, The very gospel which we have believed, in which we have taken a stand, by which we are saved, this very gospel that is the only hope for our neighbors, our family, and our community have of ever receiving a glorified, transformed body. And here's really the point. Anytime we study what's going to happen in the end, here's always the point. The message is urgent. There's an urgency. And and my goal and plea tonight is I know we've talked a lot about theology and theological terms, but, but let's not let our theology detract from our calling to proclaim this gospel every chance we get. Uh, To make much of Christ in every relationship. To be bold and really to be consistent with our gospel proclamation. Let us all unashamedly, boldly, and urgently proclaim this message. You know why? Because the trumpet may sound this very day. Oh, I'm praying that it would. I can't wait to hear the sound of that trumpet. The trumpet will sound. And at that moment, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will all be changed. The focus there is on believers. Everyone will be raised. Some unto the resurrection life and some to resurrection judgment. Friends, my my prayer is that we would all know that we will be resurrected unto life and life Abundant, And it would be something we get to experience now. So look, I know that's a lot of information for tonight. If you have any questions, I, I didn't go full into my eschatological views. That might be coming. I got to pray about it. If you have any questions about that, feel free to talk to me. Um, I do waver back and forth on this a lot uh, because I, I, I'm not sure we're ever really supposed to know. But you know what? I think the safest view is this. When the trumpet sounds, it's the end of redemptive history. Let's play it like that. Let's play it like you're not going to get another chance after something called a rapture happens. But let's play it as when the, when the trumpet sounds, that'll be the end. And that's your only shot. So you are charged not only just to get right with God today, but you are charged to proclaim this gospel message with your life. Because it's urgent. Thank you, church family. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that our hope is sure because our hope is grounded in the person and work of Christ. Father, he is indeed accomplished all things for us on our behalf. He has indeed secured our future and even now we are seated with him in our status in heaven. Lord, we confess that we're not always as diligent as we should be in taking every opportunity to share our faith in Christ with any who will listen. But Father, I pray you might convict us where we have been negligent, where we have been lazy, where we have been so content to complain about this current status as opposed to do something, the only thing we can really do about it. 
Father, I pray that you would convict us not to merit anything, not to be a better Christian, for we are already righteous in your sight, and we praise you for that. But instead, Father, that we might understand the gravity of this situation, that we might understand the power of the gospel. Lord, would you make us bold proclaimers of that good news which has brought us life. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, King Jesus. Amen.